Hi, I'm Larry Gifford. I have Parkinson's disease. This is a special Parkinson's Awareness Month episode of When Life Gives You Parkinson's. Each Wednesday in April, we'll be releasing a new episode featuring new interviews and never-before-heard bits of interviews I've collected over the past two seasons. From people with Parkinson's and their advocacy to the leaders of the Parkinson's organizations around the world that we're counting on to support us in our journeys and help drive research for new treatment options. These are the keepers of hope, the difference makers, the believers. They know you can lead a great life today with Parkinson's and that tomorrow, no matter how far in the future that may be, we can all live lives without Parkinson's. Today, under a blanket in my home, I'm recording this episode, and we're talking to Drs. Ray Dorsey, Professor of Neurology from the University of Rochester, where he directs the Center of Health and Technology, and Todd Shear, the CEO of the Michael J. Fox Foundation. They are two of the four authors of a new book that you're going to want to read. My conversation starts with Ray Dorsey. The name of the book is Ending Parkinson's Disease, and I had the pleasure to write it with Todd Shearer, uh, Michael Oaken, and Boss Bloom. Oh, just a few uh, lightweights. A few uh, lightweights. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about your collaborators. Uh, well, so, uh, Todd Shearer is a uh, CEO of the Michael J. Fox Foundation, and before that, uh, or is, a neuroscientist who 10 years ago, if not more, uh, maybe 20 years ago, demonstrated that a uh, exposure to a pesticide, chronic exposure to a pesticide called rotenone can replicate the features of Parkinson's disease in mice. Um, Michael Oaken is a neurologist and the chair of neurology at the University of Florida who has uh, pioneered uh, deep brain stimulation for the treatment of uh, Parkinson's disease. And Boss Bloom is a neurologist at Rodbald University in Nijmegen in the Netherlands and has created with uh, his colleague, Dr. Martin Munich, uh, ParkinsonNet, the largest integrated expert care model for Parkinson's disease anywhere in the world. And tell me about you. What, what have you done in the Parkinson's field, sir? Um, so uh, not nearly as much as they have. <laughs> so we work... Uh, we work hard to provide uh, care to anyone, anywhere. Uh, so for the last decade or more, we've been providing care via telemedicine, via video visits, directly to patients initially in nursing homes and now into their homes. And so we have a program called Parkinson's Disease Care New York. Uh, any of your listeners can go to pdcny.org. Uh, and anyone, any, any New Yorker with Parkinson's disease can receive care for us for free, uh, regardless of who they are or where they live. And then after June, when our grant funding funds uh, expires, we'll still be doing it independent of ability to pay. So wow. if you're a New Yorker and you have Parkinson's disease, we'll care for you in your home with an expert physician and do it regardless of ability to pay. That is amazing. Uh, thank you for doing that. Um, you also should know that you are the reason this podcast exists. I didn't know that at uh, all. Yes. So I was listening to you on the Michael J. Fox Foundation podcast when I was newly diagnosed saying uh, Parkinson's is a pandemic. And if people with Parkinson's don't start sharing their stories, there's no way we can ever raise enough money to do enough research to find a cure. And that struck me because I've been a storyteller all my life and I hadn't told anybody about my Parkinson's. Um, I've been in radio for 30 years. I was hiding it. Um, and at that moment, I decided to tell the world. And that's why I created this podcast. 
Well, I have goosebumps. That might be the nicest thing anyone has said to me uh, in quite some time. I'm moved uh, by that. I think it shows the potential, you know, to make connections to people that, you know, we've never actually met and we never even spoke to one another until uh, just now. And I had uh, no idea. And the reason we wrote the book was to galvanize uh, a million Larry Giffords uh, throughout the world. Uh, to change the course of the disease. We've done this before. In the 1950s, we created a march of dimes that raised millions of dollars to develop a vaccine that has eradicated polio, uh, not only from the United States and Canada, but from almost everywhere in the world. In the 1980s, a group of HIV activists who were subject to immense discrimination rose up, made their voices heard, and changed the course of that disease and prevented thousands and millions of people, including many of your listeners, and potentially members of our own families from ever developing HIV. And we want to do the same thing for Parkinson's disease. We've been too silent for too long. Uh, The motto of the HIV activist was silence equals death. And for Parkinson's disease, silence doesn't equal death, but it equals needless suffering, and we need to end the suffering. So that's Ray Dorsey. Let's bring in Todd Shear. So this is a great honor of mine to work on this project with Ray and Michael and Bob. And one of the reasons we came together on this is that we actually think it takes a multi-pronged effort to really combat Parkinson's, both to try to prevent future cases, develop new treatments, have optimal treatment for people today, and then advocate for a better community and better outcomes in the future for people with Parkinson's. And each of these people that are participating all bring something to the table across all of those avenues. And also, I think, importantly, also bringing in Boss Bloom, because Parkinson's has no um, uh, discrimination, and it impacts the entire world, and Boss bringing that perspective from Europe and how things are being tried there and what can be done is also, I think, very important to give the global view of what's happening with the disease. Yeah, neurological disorders are now the leading source of disability globally. The fastest growing neurological disorder in the world is Parkinson's. And we're hearing a lot about coronavirus and COVID-19 being a pandemic. Uh, But you make the case that Parkinson's is possibly a man-made pandemic. What's what's the difference between a pandemic and a man-made pandemic? And and how, how are you uh, how are you defining that? Yeah, so I think first, it's really important to uh, keep in mind and thinking about Parkinson's as it compares to what's happening with coronavirus is Parkinson's is not a contagious disease. Um, it's not caused by a virus. Um, people who have Parkinson's live very long and productive lives. I think what the point we're really trying to make with Parkinson's is that in many ways it impacts the entire world. It has global reach and it's unfortunately a growing disease. Dr. Dorsey was the first person that I heard talk about the idea of Parkinson's as a pandemic. And I've dog-eared page 41 of this book where his case is laid out. Here's Ray. Uh, So uh, Todd Scher doesn't like us using the term pandemic because he doesn't want us to distract from the uh, real threat of coronavirus. But uh, today, uh, 100 Americans will die with Parkinson's disease. Uh, Today, 200 individuals will be diagnosed with Parkinson's disease in the U.S., Uh, and, you know, hundreds if not thousands more will be diagnosed around the world and in Canada uh, with the condition. It's the fastest-growing brain disease in the world, 
um, is faster growing than uh, Alzheimer's disease. Your listeners, my risk, you know, as a physician, relatively healthy uh, guy, middle age, is one in 15 of developing the disease. My risk of dying in a car accident is one in 100. So, you know, I wear a seatbelt, drive a safe car, and have cars with uh, airbags. But, you know, my risk is one in 15. And what am I doing to decrease my risk of Parkinson's disease? Uh, is a huge th- is a huge burden to uh, all of us, and we're not doing nearly enough, and it's not receiving nearly enough attention. Just in the in the United States, NIH funding uh, adjusted for inflation has decreased over the last ten years for Parkinson's disease. At the same time, the number of Americans with the condition has increased by thirty five to forty percent. Yeah, and, and you mentioned that uh, in the twenty five years between. What, 1990 and 2015, there was, you know, the rate of Parkinson's diagnosis doubled, and it's going to double again by 2040. That's scary. Yeah. And that's not the rate of population growth, right? Well, so some of that's uh, driven by uh, older populations, but even adjusted for uh, populations, assuming that, you know, no one aged at all, rates of Parkinson's disease are increasing by 20% globally. In China, they've more than doubled over the last 25 years. And almost uh, every study that's conducted looking at the numbers only generates uh, higher estimates of the number of individuals uh, with Parkinson's disease. So what, what's your theory on what's fueling these Parkinson's, well, I don't know what you're calling it now if you're not calling it a pandemic, well, the Parkinson's onset? Yeah, well, so the, some people do call it a pandemic. And so what's fueling is aging. But what's really driving this in the uh, central argument of the book is that there are large environmental factors, products and byproducts of the Industrial Revolution that are fueling the rise of Parkinson's disease. And we've been too complacent in letting these things continue to uh, um, expand. So you don't, you don't, you don't like Paraquat pan- on your food? No. So the first response to any pandemic, whether it's the coronavirus or a fire or Parkinson's disease, should be to contain it. And we're not containing it. We're letting more and more people develop the disease. So if you have a fire, it's going on in a house. The first thing you do is you shut all the doors so no more oxygen goes to to fuel the fire. So the first thing we need to do with Parkinson's disease is to prevent it. How do you do that? uh, So one, ban Paraquat. Two, ban trichloroethylene. Three, uh, decontaminate uh, the con- uh, contaminated sites. Four, if you live near one, test the air in, in your home. Five, if you live on a, in a farm and get your water from a private well in the United States. I'm sorry, my numbers, I know the United States numbers. Forty million Americans get their water from a private well. My guess is a larger proportion of Canadians get their water from a private well. That well, at least in the United States, is not subject to the Safe Drinking Water Act. It's frequently contaminated with pesticides, and people don't even know it. Uh, other things all of us can do are exercise. We know vigorous exercise in your 50s can decrease your risk of developing Parkinson's by 20%. There's some evidence that a Mediterranean diet can also decrease your risk of Parkinson's by up to 20%. We can reduce head trauma by changing the sports that we uh, participate in and the rules for those sports and by wearing helmets when we do risky activities like bicycle and ski. So there are tons of things that we can do to decrease our risk of Parkinson's disease. Now, Todd agrees with Ray on these points and, and really hones in on the environment. The third aspect of risk factors for Parkinson's that are not always talked about the most are the environmental risk factors. Um, so one of the points that we make in the book is that those factors have been underappreciated more recently, particularly with the genetic revolution. And it's something that we should be paying more attention to and seeing what actions can be taken to change the environment in ways that could decrease this uh, 
increased risk of Parkinson's that we're seeing in the population. Well, and, and you did a lot of groundbreaking research uh, linking pesticides to Parkinson's. How did that come about? Yeah, this was actually the work I did um, back when I was in the laboratory in the late 1990s, early 2000s, and I was working under the tutelage of a really amazing researcher named Tim Greenemeyer at Emory University. And we had um, really focused on the impact that some pesticides could have in Parkinson's disease. And, and some of this came from uh, epidemiological data that suggested that um, exposure to pesticides can increase your risk of Parkinson's. Um, also, if you live rurally or use well water, there were some epidemiological studies that suggested also an increase in Parkinson's. And what we did in the laboratory was actually study the impacts on the nervous system of certain pesticides and found that um, exposing animals to uh, one particular pesticide called rotenone would actually lead to a lot of the neurological and uh, brain changes that you see in Parkinson's disease in the animals. So it provided some laboratory data that supported some of this epidemiological data that suggested that these pesticides could in fact be having the effect on the brain that you see in Parkinson's. And why are we still using these pesticides? So some pesticides um, that have been linked to diseases like Parkinson's have been taken off the market, but some are still there. And a lot of this has to do with, uh, you know, how the industry works and the cost benefits that are looked at with some of these pesticides. It's very hard to do these epidemiological data, uh, studies to really de develop definitive proof for a particular environmental toxin and a disease like Parkinson's because it is likely that there's a long time lag between the exposures and when the person get the people get the disease. Um, it's not an immediate uh, reaction to getting exposed to the pesticide that you wake up the next day, for example, with Parkinson's. So it could be an exposure you had through your middle age that then could lead to the Parkinson's later in life. So I think there's been a lot of pushback on some of the data that's been generated, but this is one of the areas of action that we have in the book, because I think the goal of the book is not just to list problems, but to highlight actions. And um, the Michael J. Fox Foundation now is very active to try to get some of these pesticides banned um, and out of use. We have a petition active. We're also trying to push legislation um, and also, we have funding programs now to try to generate additional data that could be used to um, justify taking these pesticides off of the market. Well, there was a congresswoman in New York who um, put forward a bill to, to ban Paraquat last summer, and it hasn't even left, it hasn't even gone to committee. It's just sitting there. Um, you know, what, how, do you, how do you get Congress's attention? Yeah, I mean, this is a real challenge, and I think the best way we can get Congress's attention is for us as a community to speak up and make it clear that this is something that we want done and to really mobilize as a community to advocate for ourselves. And that is also one of the kind of calling cards from this book and obviously the work of the Fox Foundation, which is that we are the solutions that we need, and we need to engage in these problems and advocate for the results that we want. So I think this is something that we're hoping 
will be galvanized using the book, you know, as some of the, the background information and then the activities of the foundations, such as the Fox Foundation, to really mobilize people to ask for these changes and demand these changes. Right. Where's the urgency? The of, I don't know. As the Michael J. Fox Foundation and Todd Sherry, you know, got 100,000 signatures uh, to do uh, and send it to uh, the EPA and the U.S. federal government. But there has been no million-man march on the EPA in the, in, uh, in the United States to, dem- to ban paraquat. There's been no million-man march in the United States to go to the EPA and ban trichloroethylene. So trichloroethylene is a very commonly used uh, industrial solvent. It's been used in everything from uh, whiteout to dry cleaning to decaffeinating coffee as late as the 1970s. In the U.S., it contaminates over uh, half of Superfund sites, EPA-designated uh, sites uh, that are contaminated. There are hundreds of such sites in Canada, uh, numerous in Vancouver, uh, for example, that are contaminated with this chemical because it's widely used in dry cleaning industrials. It goes into the ground so- soil, contaminates groundwater. Up to 30% of the U.S. groundwater is contaminated with this chemical. And then it evaporates from the soil and groundwater, much like radon, and enters people's homes and workplaces undetected and uh, increases people's risk of Parkinson's disease. Uh, so there are lots of things that we can be doing to decrease our risk and to contain the pandemic, or whatever term you want to use uh, for Parkinson's disease, but we're not doing them. Does- and we're suffering the consequences of them. Yeah. So does Parkinson's have a branding issue? Like we, we talk about, oh, well, at least it won't kill you. And, you know, the images we use are of these marathoners and of Jimmy Choi and, you know, which are great. I mean, I'm so proud of Jimmy and everything he does. And But we're not showing the frozen woman or the man slobbering. You know, we, we look good for a long time with Parkinson's and we work and we're active. And then, you know, it's not degenerative anymore. It's progressive. You know, like, are we are we are we soft peddling this? I think so. I think there's a silence issue. People are suffering with Parkinson's disease. You know, you're doing great, and you know you're doing a podcast, but even in your down times, your down moments, you know it stinks. It's horrible. And it's horrible. And uh, it's, uh, you know, people say they don't wish it on their enemy. And it's not just that you have it for a day or a week or a month or, you know, ideally coronavirus will, you know, hopefully disappear, but you have it for 15 to 20 years. People with the disease have it an equivalent for every Monday of their life. From the time they're born to the time they die, they have Parkinson's disease on every Monday. And some people it's on every Monday and Tuesday of their entire life. And for some people it's even every Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. And uh, I think people are suffering. Caregivers are suffering. Families are suffering. And the silence that, that is permeating the community is leading to needless suffering because we can rise up, stand up, and we've done it before. We've done it with polio. We've done it with HIV. We've done it with breast cancer even and change the course of these diseases so people can end their suffering and so people can be prevented from ever developing the disease. We would love to not have a sequel to our book. Maybe it's just Parkinson's disease has ended and that's the sequel <laughs> uh, to the book and that's the end of it and that you know all these Parkinson's centers can be closed down just like polio centers are closed down throughout the country and around the world. Not everybody exposed to these chemicals ends up with Parkinson's disease. So what's the other factor that goes into the exposure? You know, there's the exposure, and then what else has to happen for Parkinson's to appear? Yeah, I mean, my my opinion on this, which I think is pretty well considered the kind of general view in the, in the field, is that Parkinson's is a multifactorial disease, 
And I mentioned a little earlier in our conversation, there's three real main pillars, I think, that lead to the risk factors for Parkinson's. Uh, one is age. The second is, and all the changes that happen in the body with aging. The second is genetic predistribution. Uh, so there could be some specific genes that can cause Parkinson's. Those are very, and very rarely found. But there are a number of genes that have been found or changes in the DNA that could increase your risk for getting Parkinson's. And then the third are these environmental exposures. And they all kind of come together and work together to different degrees in different cases of Parkinson's. So, you know, one of the reasons why it's been so hard to generate the data for environmental exposures in Parkinson's is the exact reason you just made. Not everyone who gets the exposure gets the disease. So it's probably an individual who's exposed in a certain way that has a certain genetic predisposition, predisposition sorry, to getting the disease. Um, and they, those two factors sort of come together. One of the things we're learning in the biology, in the laboratory, is that a lot of the same cell biological changes that could get initiated by a genetic mutation overlap with the same biological changes that some of these environmental factors induce in the cells. So there could be this common underlying biology that's impacted, and the trigger in each individual case could be slightly different, whether it's environment, genetics, a combination of the two. So is is it because it's so complicated does that make it hard to build urgency so i think that's actually something in general that has been a real challenge for parkinson's so not only is it hard to build urgency because the underlying biology is complicated the um science is very complicated it's also i think in some ways um a catch-22 with the disease so Parkinson's disease um, is obviously a very tough disease when people get Parkinson's and they're diagnosed. But the positive side of it is that people still live a very long time and productive life with the diagnosis of Parkinson's, particularly if they're you know, being well-treated. So that also, I think, impacts kind of the urgency with which people act. So Parkinson's is not a death sentence. And people kind of adapt and manage the disease. So I think you have a couple of different uh, factors that are at play in terms of really why we can't galvanize as much urgency as we would like. I think this has been a real um, ethos of the Fox Foundation around urgency. And of course, being founded by Michael as a patient, he brings that urgency to the table. And I think one of the things that we're hoping to accomplish through the book and other activities that I'm involved in is to galvanize more and more the community, both the scientific community as well as the patient community, to increase the level of urgency and demand more action more quickly than we've been getting. And I think we can do that. I think there's a lot of promising science happening, and I think that there's a lot of great community leaders in the Parkinson's community. But I think this is an example where we'll take all of us to just act with that much more urgency and put that much more pressure 
for the things that we want to see done to make it happen more quickly. When you finished writing the book and you look back on it, was there anything that surprised you that came out of the collaboration? Um, a, a couple of things that surprised me. One was actually um, certainly what we talked about around kind of the environmental co- contribution to the disease and how um, you know we need to push those back forward because I think we've become very enamored with the genetics, which I think is obviously very important scientifically. So that was one. And the other was really learning a lot from both Boss and, um, and Ray and Mike Oaken about how we could still also be improving the current treatment of Parkinson's disease and that the treatment needs to be really holistic. And it's not just pharmacological treatment, uh, exercise, mental health, well-being, um, a lot of the programs that BOSS has put in place in Europe that are very interesting in terms of really caring for the entire person. Um, and one other thing that's become very important timely now that, that Ray has worked on about technology and using things like video conferencing and telemedicine and how can we provide more current care, better use the tools we have now, for people with Parkinson's. So it doesn't have to just be sit back and wait for that miracle cure to come. And we all, we all know the timelines with, um, with drug development and, and science, but there are actually things today that could be done to improve your own care um, as well as what the doctors and teams could put in place. So that I found to be very interesting. And then also working on the policy components the fact that, you know, we still have, at least in the United States, the government still operates in a way where it's for the people and we can, we don't have to sit back and just settle for what's happening for us and, and learning how other diseases actually push themselves forward and got more resources, for example, towards research by right. advocating and demanding it. And I think that's something we should certainly be looking at for Parkinson's. Well, it's interesting when you talk about telehealth, you know, now that what 80% of the world is now commuting from home. <laughs> uh, I, I just had a doctor's appointment for my son uh, over the phone, um, which, you know, a month ago, I wouldn't have thought of. Um, so I think that that's being forced upon us, thanks to COVID, whether we want it to or not. Well, and I hope we can continue it because if yeah. you think about for Parkinson's disease, there's not enough you know, the clinics that have the expertise are not as many as we want. And a lot of them, you know, are, are geographically located in big cities, you know, or big medical institutions. And that's not the distribution of the patients. So um, this has always been something kind of of interest to Parkinson's. What's also interesting in Parkinson's is because a lot of the exam can be actually be done through telemedicine. It's the, it's the neurologist looking at movements. Um, Fox Foundation and others have done a lot of research in the last few years on more remote monitoring of patients with you know digital sensors and watches. And so a lot can be done with technology. And I think the care could be greatly improved. Um, particularly, you know, as the disease is a motor disease, it could become not so straightforward for people to get to these visits. And right. why don't bring the, vi- bring the visit to the person and we can really optimize that care. So I think you're, you're right. It's sort of sometimes maybe it takes, you know, a, a very dramatic event to, to force this kind of change. 
But hopefully this can continue for people um, even once we come out of this because I do think it will help people interact with their doctors more often and make sure they're getting kind of that holistic treatment that they want and deserve. Telehealth is Ray's specialty. He's been doing it successfully for over a decade and is a passionate advocate for telehealth and using technology to monitor people with Parkinson's. Everyone with Parkinson's disease should be able to benefit from expert care delivered to them on their terms. We should not ask people with impaired mobility and impaired driving ability to drive large distances to Toronto or to Vancouver or to Ottawa uh, to receive uh, care for their condition. We should be able to receive, provide care to them in their homes or in their communities on their terms. And whether that's care from a physician, whether that's care from a nutritionist, whether that's care from an occupational or physical therapist or a speech therapist, we should deliver care to people on their terms regardless of who they are and where they live. And then next, we should develop new treatments uh, to treat the condition. The most effective treatment for Parkinson's disease is 50 years old. There are relatively few conditions for which the most effective treatment is 50 years old. Yeah, that, that's a question. Let's just stop there for a minute. Why am I taking 15 doses a day of a 50-year-old medicine? Um, I think we have really poor measures of uh, Parkinson's disease and other neurodegenerative conditions. Uh, so uh, you're taking 15 doses a day from a 50-year-old medicine because, one, it's highly effective, and, two, we have terrible measures of the disease. And if you think of Alzheimer's disease in the United States, we have 5.5 million Americans, you know, probably uh, a million uh, Canadians with uh, Alzheimer's disease, and essentially almost no highly effective treatments at all. And that's because we using subjective rating scales to, I think, and part, of, and part of it is we're using subjective rating scales to assess whether a drug works or doesn't. Yeah, what, the, UPD, giving, the UPDRS is how old? Uh, the UPDRS, the first one is probably 30-some years old, and the new ones, you know, about 10 years old. They're doing the best that they can, and they, these things are better than what was there uh, previously. But we're now all, can, we're all walking around with supercomputers around us, which can measure our gait objectively. So rather than asking a doctor like me to rate your gait on a scale that goes from zero to four, <laughs> and if you have Parkinson's disease you're, and you can walk, you're either a one, two, or three, uh, we can use the supercomputer that you have in your pocket, you know, 90% of the time you're walking to assess your gait. And so we should be using that to better understand how Parkinson's disease affects people in their natural environments, and two, to assess the efficacy of new promising treatments uh, for the disease instead of relying on me to rate you on a scale that goes from zero to four. Yeah, people who have never seen somebody get a, a checkup for uh, Parkinson's, it, first they make you uh, walk the catwalk so they can observe your gait, and then they try to make you fall. <laughs> and then they test all these, your, your fingers and your tapping your toes. And it's, it, it, it's, it's really quite, and it's just them looking at you and evaluating it. They're subjective. You know, that's, that looks like a three to me. Uh, but for somebody else, it could be a two or a four. And it's only once a year or twice a year that you get that. And you could have an off day or an on day. And, and uh, they don't really know how you live your life. Uh, yeah. And so we have very little insights into how people live their life. We don't know, like, how much time people are spending at home. We don't know how much time people are spending at home alone with Parkinson's disease. We don't measure any of those things for caregivers either. We don't know, like, what portion of the day they're spending sleeping or lying down or napping or isolated or depressed or anxious or any of the things that actually really matter to people with Parkinson's disease. To me, those are all much more valuable information than how fast you can tap your thumb and index finger. 
and we have the means and technologies to make us those kinds of assessments today. And those will not only improve the care that we're able to provide to people with the condition, but I think more efficiently evaluate new treatments uh, for the condition that are greatly needed. Now, you mentioned that, uh, I mean, I know exercise helps me and keep the the onset of the symptoms at, at bay as best as possible when I, when I take the time to do it. Uh, and when I don't, I feel it. Um, but you mentioned that if you don't have the disease, it can, pre- it can help prevent you from getting the disease. I hadn't heard that. Yeah, so Dr. Albert Asherio and his colleagues at Harvard have conducted several studies that uh, use nurses and doctors as guinea pigs. And so they do natural history studies where they follow the health of doctors and nurses uh, over decades. And they find out that those doctors and nurses who are um, the most vigorous exercisers, three and a half to four hours a week of running or swimming, for example, uh, can decrease their subsequent risk of developing Parkinson's disease by 20% 12 years later. Uh, So if I have a chance to decrease my risk of uh, Parkinson's disease by 20% uh, by exercising four hours a week, uh, I, as an able-bodied, relatively wealthy person, will be delighted to do so. So are you doing that? Yeah. I'll hopefully be going to the pool tonight. (laughs) Excellent. Uh, Well, good good for you. You don't want this. Trust me. Are we getting enough young researchers and scientists interested in Parkinson's? So there's definitely um, been an increase, I think, in neuroscience. A lot of young investigators focus in neuroscience. And I think that um, the brain is one of the last frontiers for research. So certainly there's a lot of interest. Um, I do think in general we need to keep our eye on the ball of training young investigators, young doctors, and making this a desirable career for people. I wouldn't say that's necessarily just for Parkinson's disease. Um, I think that's kind of holistically. And so that's something I actually have been involved in um, in a number of uh, programs with the National Academy of Science to really try to make sure we're supporting and incentivizing the young investigators who bring a lot of new ideas and new innovation to the field. We also have a program at the Fox Foundation focused on movement disorder training of doctors, and it's the Edmund J. Saffer Fellowship Program for Movement Disorders. I think that is equally important to not only getting more investigators and researchers in, but making sure that young doctors or doctors new in their career focus on a disease like Parkinson's disease or movement disorders when they're looking across all the different areas that they can go into Um, and that's something that this program focuses on we support five new fellows each year internationally to train people at the best centers not only for the treatment but the clinical trial design and clinical trial implementation but i think more area this is a great thing i think that we've been talking about to even advocate federal government because we really need more people in this field and and more brains thinking about this is only going to be beneficial. What makes this disease unique? I think the thing that makes it unique is that it's uh, the fastest growing brain disorder in the world. It's doubled over the last uh, 25 years. People live long periods of time with it, you know, 15 plus years uh, with the disease. Uh, And that I think there are large man-made contributions to the disease. And to the extent that Parkinson's disease is man-made, I think it can be human-ended. 
And uh, this disease grew up with the Industrial Revolution before Dr. Parkinson described it in London in 1817. It was, by almost all accounts, exceedingly rare. And now it's the um, second most common neurodegenerative condition uh, in the world, only to Alzheimer's disease. So something has happened, and it's not just aging. Um, I think uh, we've brought on many, at least many cases of Parkinson's ourselves through our behaviors and actions, whether that's increasing air pollution, using certain pesticides, known uh, pesticides which are nerve toxins uh, that are known to be linked to Parkinson's, using industrial chemicals that we know are linked to Parkinson's disease and heavy metals that are also linked to the disease. And we can stop it, and we can change the course of the disease, and we can change the course of the disease today. And that's why we wrote the book, uh, Ending Parkinson's. Yeah, and in, in the book, Chapter 10, you provide 25 action points for the Parkinson's community. And, you know, they have to, we have to activate. We, we have to be part of the solution. And I think it's important to highlight no one else is going to do that for us, right? That is, it's up to us to do that. We, and we could pick, you know, there's a lot of options. So people, I think, can pick the one that suits them at this particular moment. But I think everyone who reads the book or who, you know, is involved in this community should, should decide you know, which one of these should I try or which five of them should I do? Because no one else, there's no one else behind you to do it. We have to do it. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, you know, there's a lot of on-ramps that, you know, the Fox Foundation, for example, where we will try to make it as easy as it is possible for you to, to do the advocate, to advocate if that's what you want or to participate in research. Um, but it still takes taking that first step. That first step might just be logging on to michaeljfox.org. At the top of the homepage, you'll see four areas to explore. Why we exist, understanding Parkinson's, for researchers, and take action. Go ahead, click on take action. There are 17 things that you can begin doing today. Now, when I talk to you, I mean, what, what you're saying seems scary and big and, and, and realistic, um, but, but your tone is very optimistic and hopeful. Where does that passion and the hope come from? Because we've done it before. We did it for polio. Polio in the 1950s was the second most feared uh, condition next to nuclear war. So right in the 1950s, uh, children had in school had nuclear war drills, duck and cover, because they feared nuclear war. The second most feared thing was polio because it shut down churches, schools, and swimming pools, not too dissimilar from what's happening right now with the coronavirus, and tens of thousands of children uh, would develop polio, became paralyzed, and the only treatment at that time was an iron lung. You got put into an iron case uh, respirator uh, to help you stay alive as, and hope that the effects of polio would uh, dissipate over time. People said we got tired of it. Uh, a entrepreneur, an actor, I think, came up with the idea to send dimes know, 10 cent pieces to the White House, to President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who may have had polio himself. And uh, the first day that they, I think at the time they were getting about 5,000 pieces of mail uh, at the White House. The first day they got 50,000 dimes, uh, 50,000 letters coming in. The next day, 150,000 letters coming in. Uh, in the words of the uh, person who managed the uh, White House mailroom, it darn near shut the mailroom down. 
and raised millions of dollars and let Jonas Salk and Albert Sabin develop vaccines that changed the course of the disease, prevented thousands, if not millions, from ever becoming paralyzed, and has nearly eradicated the disease from the face of the earth. Wow. I mean, we've done it before, and we've done it with longer odds. I mean, think about what was happening in the 1981 New York Times article reported a rare cancer occurring in homosexual men. At that time, HIV was unknown, AIDS was uniformly and rapidly fatal, and the federal response was either silence or uh, uh, outright discrimination against the individuals. A group of activists said, if we don't get our act together, we're going to die. That was, I think, a direct quote from the book that we wrote. If we don't get our act together, we're going to die. And they got their act together. You know, they uh, protested on the streets of New York. Uh, they shut down the New York Stock Exchange. They shut down the FDA. They barricaded themselves in pharmaceutical companies until uh, federal investment was increased, until clinical trials were conducted, until pharmaceutical companies lowered the prices of their drugs so that more and more individuals could afford them. Today, HIV might, more people with HIV, a greater proportion of people with HIV might be receiving treatment for their condition than for Parkinson's disease. HIV might be more treated today than Parkinson's disease. Wow. We will scream from the rooftops. What do you wish you knew better about Parkinson's? Well, well, honestly, I didn't know quite about, about these environmental risk factors until I had the gift of a sabbatical to really read Dr. Uh, Carly Tanner's work and that of uh, others, uh, and really appreciated, uh, one, how rare the disease was before Dr. Parkinson uh, described it, and two, how much evidence uh, is out there uh, demonstrating that there are environmental risk factors that are contributing strongly to the disease, and how pervasive uh, these risk factors are. I never used to ask individuals with Parkinson's disease why they got Parkinson's disease. Now I ask almost everyone I see why they get Parkinson's disease. And within five minutes or so, I can usually identify risk factors uh, for what it is, whether there were crop dusters spraying their uh, neighborhoods uh, every summer for mosquitoes or flies, or they grew up drinking well water, or whether they worked uh, in an automobile parts manufacturing plant that used trichloroethylene, or whether they live near contaminated uh, sites, um, you can find these stories and you can find these risk factors. Now, I can't say whether that's indeed the reason that they developed it, but it's certainly when you keep hearing the same story over and over again, you get more and more suspicious. Uh, You started with saying uh, the world needs a million Larry Giffords, and I think you scared everybody away. (laughs) No, we need a million Larry Giffords. Listen, if everyone, you know, your great gift and great skills communicating uh, complicated information in an engaging way uh, to large audiences. And so, you know, uh, the person who started the pink ribbon was actually a homemaker in Southern California who created a peach ribbon with a little message that said that uh, National Cancer Institute spends, you know, X millions of dollars a year on cancer research, but only 5% on prevention. And she was focused on uh, trying to get uh, us to reorient our priorities around preventing the disease. She didn't want any more of her sisters or mothers or aunts developing breast cancer. She wanted people to prevent them from ever getting it. Our goal in life should not be to uh, cure people of Parkinson's disease, although that would be great. Even better would be to prevent people from ever getting the disease in the first place. We don't want to get breast cancer and then be cured of it. We just never want to get breast cancer in the first place. And so everyone can play a small role. 
uh, and doing it, writing a letter to their congressman, writing a letter to the EPA administrator, and we provide their emails uh, in the book, and so they can email the EPA administrator, Andrew Wheeler, and tell them to ban paraquat or ban triclethylene. If he gets a million emails from Americans and Canadians and, and your listeners all over the world, that might change his view on the, the, the necessity of keeping around uh, pesticides that have been around for 70 years and chemicals that have been around for 100 years on the market. Excellent. It's, the book is called Ending Parkinson's Disease. What's the timeline? Well, I, always, I get to ask this question a lot, and my, my timeline is always as fast as we possibly can. Um, and I think what you see in the book is that there's different ways of even defining success. And we want to have, be, you know, better treatments for people today, ultimately treatments that slow the disease. And, you know, if, if we're really successful to limit the number of cases by getting the pesticides and other environmental toxins out of the environment. Um, I wish I could give like a clear timeline, but it will not, we will not, uh, it will only go faster if we all get up, take those steps and act against all of these areas where we should be advocating for. I, I'm just concerned because I know once that happens, you're out of a job. So I've just, I'm concerned for your well-being. I am more than happy to be out of my job. <laughs> I've already picked out a couple of nice locations where I could be. And I'll be glad to sit there and have a nice cocktail with you, Larry, once we resolve this. I would love that. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for writing the book and for spending some time with us, Todd. Sure. Thanks, Larry. Stay well, stay careful, and um, the, the, tomorrow will be better than today. Todd Shear and Ray Dorsey, keepers of hope, difference makers, believers. Be inspired. Go out and get the book Ending Parkinson's Disease. It's available wherever you buy books. When Life Gives You Parkinson's, we'll be discussing the book at the end of April in a virtual book club, so keep an eye out for details. This is When Life Gives You Parkinson's, a Curious Cast podcast, written and produced by me, Larry Gifford. Our story editor is Dila Velazquez, and our sound design is by Rob Johnson. We also want to hear from you. You can record a voice message for us at speakpipe.com slash Parkinson's. What are you doing to pass the time and keep active while self-isolated due to COVID-19? Call us, speakpipe.com slash when life gives you Parkinson's. There are a ton of free Parkinson's exercise classes available on Zoom and Facebook Live. Tim Haig is doing a daily live workout through the U-Turn Parkinson's Facebook page. Jimmy Choi is working out three days a week on Zoom. And there are a bunch of others. Please keep active and engaged in this truly strange time in our lives and take care of yourself. Be well. Our presenting partner is Parkinson Canada, parkinson.ca. One of the programs Parkinson Canada offers is a confidential information and referral line. And so if you have any questions at all, don't hesitate to reach out to info at parkinson.ca or call toll-free 1-800-565-3000. Parkinson Canada colleagues are there for you. They're great listeners and can answer questions on a huge range of topics. Thank you to Ray Dorsey, Todd Shear, and the Michael J. Fox Foundation. If you're interested in hearing more about the science of Parkinson's, check out How Did I Get Parkinson's from February 4th, 2020. 
Special thanks also to our promotional partner, Spotlight YOPD, the only organization in the world with the singular focus of raising awareness of young-onset Parkinson's disease. You can find them at spotlightyopd.org. And in the U.S., Parkinson's IQ Plus U. This is a free series of Parkinson's events from the Michael J. Fox Foundation to educate and empower people with Parkinson's and their partners. Some of these events have been postponed due to COVID-19, so go to michaeljfox.org pdiq to watch for rescheduled dates. Interested in learning more about Parkinson's and connecting to the community? I encourage you to save the date for the 6th World Parkinson Congress, also known as the WPC 2022, to be held June 7th to 10th in Barcelona, Spain in 2022. It's the only totally inclusive scientific conference that opens its doors to people with Parkinson's and families. We'll be there. You should come join me. Learn more at WPC2022.org. Thank you for listening. Please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to podcasts. While you're there, give the show a five-star rating, and please share in the comments why you recommend the podcast. You can also engage with us on social media. It's at Parkinson's Pod at Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or email us at parkinsonspod at curiouscast.ca. Keep positive. Keep exercising. Keep listening. We'll talk to you next time. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.